Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there to all you Brooklyn and, folk. This is oh. Sam Maxwell, and we are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Oh, podcast come on. That I keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. <laughs> we are live uh, with the... Sorry about that, folks. I was certain that I had removed all of that from uh, being a technical difficulty again, and yet apparently not. But oh well, uh, we are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. What a way to start. Uh, It's hard to talk about the legacy of uh, the National League Baseball in New York without being daffy ourselves, Greg. Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing. How are you doing, Greg? I'm fine. Uh, Sounds like you've got Hilda Chester and uh, the whole symphony out back there behind you somewhere. (laughs) Exactly. And I, you know, I can't really, this time, last time I had to shut the whole thing down and start over with the, uh, the the republishing of of the podcast, but we're not going to be doing that this time. I think I got it shut off uh, in time enough for that not to be the case. And, you know, this this is what's happening. We're we're we sometimes trip all uh you know all over our own two feet. Uh, as they say, you know, I'm a southpaw, so I don't necessarily like this saying, but you know, you have two left feet, if you will. Uh, and, and mm-hmm. <laughs> that's basically that's where I wanted to go with this in some fashion. You know, following with the wait till next year. A saying that Dodger fans were very fond of doing year after year after year, and you know it, it was it wasn't until basically the 1941, and then they they didn't they had some successful years in the 40s, but not as many successful years as once they settled in with that unbelievable team, the Boys of Summer of the 1950s, the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, and so they did a lot of waiting till next year. And even when they had a great team, they had to continue to wait till next year after beating, being beaten by the Yankees so many times. So at what point does wait, waiting till next year really weigh down on you? And especially considering that right now the Wilpons ownership doesn't seem to be able to get their footing uh, uh, to have more than two successful years in a row. This seems to be the general pattern for the current incarnation of National League Baseball in New York. So you're saying that the Wilpons have four left feet, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess uh, to, to use a, 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 a cliche of the 21st century, your mileage may vary. Uh Depending, you know, how what what it takes to to seat you as a fan, how much success builds up your resistance to misery that inevitably follows, except for the most golden of franchises, and even even uh, the most golden of franchises can't win every single year. Now, after 1986, the Mets. Fell behind in 1987, suffered uh, injuries to their pitching staff, the slumps, you know, there were things that happened the year after. And, you know, roared back, got into the race, came from, I think it was 10 and a half back at one point in the middle of summer to one and a half back. They were playing the Cardinals, big, big rival of the Brooklyn Dodgers as well, now I think about it. 
and uh, we're, we're this close to coming to within half a game on September 11, 1987, with Doc Gooden pitching the next day, and Terry Pendleton hits a two-run homer with two out in the ninth to, to tie the game at Shea Stadium, and the Mets lose in the tenth. And at that moment, and in the the weeks to come uh, until the Mets were finally eliminated uh, from their chance to repeat, nobody was saying to themselves, "You know, it's okay. We won last year." Because you know, you 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 get find Mets fans of a vintage who remember 1987. And nobody is, is chill about it. Uh, nobody's chill about 1988 and uh, losing uh, game four of the NLCS to the Dodgers and Mike Sosha and going on to lose that series in seven. But that said, I, th- I think it was on the, the night of game seven of the 1991 World Series, which happened to be on the fifth anniversary of the Mets winning the World Series in 86, and then maybe there was a note made of it on on the local news that it was, hey, it's been five years since. And and that's when it really hit me, because also the, the Mets that year was the first one they weren't contenders for real since 86. You know, they, they had disappointed us, but, you know, at least they were still a good team, and you started every year with the idea that they would continue to be a good team. And in 1991, they, they got to August and just crumbled, and we didn't know at the time – that they would take a long time to, you know, for, for Humpty Dumpty to uh, get it back together again. So uh, I remember that night, it was, it was in five years, I said, my God, it's been a long time. And so that's been kind of my rule, that's been kind of my rule of thumb for wait till next year. You, you, you probably are, are, are best served by, by keeping quiet in your dismay. After you know one year, two years, I don't think that happens really anymore because of Twitter. Because nobody keeps quiet for five seconds, let alone five years. But it, it seems like a reasonable yeah. rule of thumb. And that, 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 by the way, was after a World Series. Uh, the, the Mets haven't won a World Series now, as as you and your listeners know, for 33 years. So you know, to, to me, all, all the next years are uh, you know kind of calibrated. Well, you know, we we made the playoffs three years ago. We won a pennant four years ago. That sort of thing, and then that too is, is sort of wearing off at this point. So, does that have a lot to do with the current fan outrage, uh, uh, you know, environment? You know, the fact that, like, literally, um, I mean, it's it's amazing to me that the blow up from Sunday, and if if uh, your list, if our listeners don't know, that uh, Mets manager Mickey Calloway thought a reporter was being sarcastic when he said, see you tomorrow, Mickey. And uh, he uh, threw some expletives his way. And then a, a pitcher uh, got in his face ready to fight him. Now, I, you know, I, I think maybe it's also because of the losing this week, uh, blowing some uh, more games and having the, the bullpen issues be so glaringly up front. Um, but it, it, this particular story seems to have more legs than usual from the the daily 24-7 news cycle that we have. Yeah, I mean, the people are just e- easy to rile these days. I mean, here we are on the precipice of, of what should be, weather permitting, uh, a wonderful weekend of, of tribute and honor for the 69 Mets. You know, by definition, one of the two greatest teams in franchise history, uh, as Howie Rose called them in ceremonies this morning, in which they they changed the the identity of 126th Street to Seaver Way and the address of City Field to 41 Seaver Way, 
He called it the, the greatest sports story ever told, or the greatest New York sports story ever told. Personally, I think you can just go with the greatest story ever told, and, you, and you'd be fine. But, you know, every time that the Mets make an, an announcement through one of their social media feeds saying, you know, we're, we're doing you – know, we're, we're, we're having the ceremonies for 41 Seaver Way tomorrow. We're having you know, our, the players come back from 1969 on, on Saturday – so the response, while some of it is of a, uh, a positive, uplifting, we, we, we remember 69 or we, we cherish what 69 means, even if we don't remember it, I'd say the majority is, is just an excuse to tell the Mets that uh, it's not 1969, it's 2019, and here are all the things you're doing wrong. Every day is Festivus, mm-hmm. essentially, or Metsivus, if you will, uh, on social media. And that probably extends to basically everything. Uh, unless you make a concerted effort not to be snarky and not to be cranky, it, it just comes out. And, you know, to be fair, the 2019 Mets, uh, like the, the additions that have uh, directly preceded it, uh, are, are not giving a lot of excuse to people who, you know, pour themselves into loving a, a franchise, loving a team, to feel good about it. So it's it's just it's harder to cut slack. It's harder to to resist, you know, bringing the zinger. You know, I'm sure they did it at Ebbets Field. I'm sure they did it at the Polo Grounds. It's just amplified and it's instantaneous, and you don't have to be in the ballpark to to hear it these days. Well, I mean, I remember one fan from back in the day fighting an umpire. <laughs> That's how passionate a Dodgers fan were. Yeah, these things are. Yeah, in a lot of ways, we're tamer, but you know, we we have other channels through, through which to let it out. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing that if we just sit here and uh, type 280 characters of, of disgust, and then you know, we we get it out of our system, and then we can, you know, go go to the ballpark and not not bite the umpire, which is probably advisable. But uh, you know, we we no, no, none of us. <laughs> became fans to get angry and to stay angry, but it, it is part and parcel of the package. And it's, it's because you, you know, you take it seriously and it's just so, you know, again, the Twitter and such as have, have given us something of an insular world in which, you know, we, we as fans of the same team can communicate to one another without having to explain for however many paragraphs it would take, what the hell we're talking about. So, you know, if, if Robinson Cano, you know, does not exactly burn it down the line to beat out a ground ball and somebody inevitably brings up Roberto Alomar or Carlos Baerga because, you know, they are antecedents to Cano as a uh, over-the-hill American League former all-star second baseman to come to the Mets and seem to lose their skill and perhaps interest in the game. Uh, we all know them. We just say, oh, my God, Robbie Alomar, or something like that. A, a friend of mine just tweets at me about, quote, I wonder, what, what does he call him? Robinson Alomar. That's his nickname for Cano. And I get it. You didn't have to explain what the hell he was talking about. So, um, and again, and this is all while you're still sitting there pulling for, for you know, uh, Robbie Robinson Cano, if I can remember his name now, you know, to break out of it and, uh, you know, prove, prove the doubters wrong. And, you know, but again, you know what? The, the fans got on the players in Brooklyn. They got on them in Manhattan. 
get on them in Queens. Uh, it, it's how we roll. And, uh, you know, we, we get eventually, hopefully, to the point where we have nothing to get on and we're thrilled. And that will carry us through all the next years. I think in terms of the Robinson Cano thing, it would be a lot easier, you know, if you're grading on a curve, if he wasn't batting third. If you, I'm sorry, if he wasn't hurt? No, if he wasn't batting third. Oh, he wasn't batting third. I'm sorry. Yeah, and again, I, you don't know exactly without getting off on too much of a tangent here. Um you, you don't know who exactly is deciding that Robinson Cano has to bat third because, in you know, again, back back, back at Ebbets Field in the 1940s, you, you'd say, oh, I guess I guess Leo DeRocher decided to bat. Uh, this is made, made the batting order today. Well, we you know these days, <laughs> is it is it the manager? Is it the general manager? Is it you know the analytics department communicating to the manager? Strong, making strong suggestions is perhaps the COO of the team weighing in, and 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 and, and, and in a new wrinkle, what is the uh, the impact of the relationship between the general manager who used to be the player's agent and the player, and gosh, you know, Robbie prefers to bat third, so you know, my my my, my golden client of your who is now you know technically an employee around here, but you know he's he still means more to me than the manager. Bat him third, okay. So it, it gets that I, again. I, I I couldn't say what it's like for the other 29 franchises. I have an idea about the two New York National League franchises that preceded the Mets because you know they they are part of our heritage and I've certainly read about them enough. Um, but I, I'm sure every franchise is, is odd in its own way, but. It just gets really odd around here uh, with the Mets, things like this. That you really are pretty sure, all due respect to, to, to the angst and the doubts of, of 29 other fan bases, we, we, we have things going on here that nobody else has. And I think that just adds more to the sense of, uh, you know, throw, throwing your hands up uh, within uh, 280 characters and uh, saying, I've had enough, I've had enough, I've had enough, and what time is first pitch? Because I noticed that everybody who says I'm done, that's it, is is back the next day. I I really do laugh when I hear that's it, I've had it, I'm not giving them any more of my attention. Uh, You know, I I think, like, there's one thing when you see I'm not giving them any more of my money, and that may be the case. You know, obviously I'm not privy to the Mets books. I'm also not privy to every fan who says that they're going to deny ownership their funds. Uh, but, you know, I necess- I personally haven't gone to a Mets game except for a Monday in Philadelphia, uh, which I did have a good time, even though the Mets lost. But I, I haven't been able to give the Wilfons my money, as much money as I-, I used to, because I'm just so busy all the time. And, you know, they're, they're trying everything that they-, they can to get us into the ballpark except for putting a winning baseball team on the field on a consistent basis. Obviously, there have been their moments. Um, so, you know, let's, let's move to – you brought up 1969 before, and let's talk a little bit about – obviously, that was um, – Mets fans were so thrilled to have 
a baseball team back in the first place, no matter whether they were winning or losing at the time. Uh, but in 1969, all that went out the window, and expectations changed, of course, for going forward. And a lot of uh, people who had heard so many stories about the Dodgers and the Giants, they were able to have their own amazing memories now of, of what a winning baseball team on the new uh, National League side of things was like in New York. Um, how important is it for the wait till next year to either remind the current fan base that didn't necessarily go through 1969 and also even remind the players that things do eventually change and waiting till next year does eventually pay off. How important are moments like this where you are able to celebrate, like Howie said, the greatest sports story in the history of New York or in the history of, of baseball? I think it's very important. It's you know, For the fans, you know, it's you know one of the things you cling to. I think it can also become sort of a cudgel against your your, your sanity sometimes because there, there is a, a piece of you as a, a contemporary fan who keeps going in terms of watching and caring and attending ball games, and like you have attended fewer this year. Um, but you know, it's still your your identity and so on. Uh, you. So some, sometimes you get caught up in the idea of, yeah, that's great that that happened, but you know we've just lost four in a row. But you know, again, you you you, you come from somewhere where your your fandom is concerned, and you, you need to know that that there is some precedent for you to to rely on, to enjoy, and to treasure. And I think 1969, you know, more than anything is the, you know, the signature season of Mets baseball. And it, it completely changed the trajectory of the franchise. You know, yeah, 60, 62, you were just happy to have National League Baseball back in New York. And, you know, you, you, you were catering. You may have been catering at the beginning to, to that, you know, abandoned, dejected combination of Dodger and Giant fans and you know while they may have formed the core, you know you quickly grew because it had been a few years, and then a few years can make a great deal of difference. You quickly grew this organic fan base that decided, for whatever reason, whether whether through you know irony, whether through hopefulness, whether because it was just fun, bright, and colorful, that this new team was for them, and it became their team forever. And, you know, to get from, say, 19, even 1964, when Shea Stadium opens, to get five years later and you still, you know, your big accomplishment is finishing in ninth place and not losing 90 games, that had ratcheted up. And to not just say, hey, we're, you know, a 500 club, we, we're in third place, we might do okay, to we are the champions of the world, just tells you, like, you know, what a sports team is capable of, what your sports team is capable of, and... You know, 69, whether it was a miracle or not, the, the players seemed to disdain the idea that it was a miracle. Cause it's, it's like telling them you were never that good to begin with. You just got, you know, extremely lucky. Um, or, you know, whether it's it's the fans, um, it gives us something to say, well, it happened in 69. Uh, to, to a certain degree, 
I, I, I would say that the, uh, the the more operative precedent for Mets fans every year at this time, I mean, specifically this time where the Mets are, are well under 500 and well behind the first place team is 1973 because they had a 1969 that didn't quite go as far, but it was more compressed, you know, last place at the end of August and in the World Series of the seventh game. So, so you know, some, sometimes that stuff can taunt us because sometimes I want to say someone who lived through 73 and remember just enough of 69 that, you know, listen, this, this is not that team. But, you know, you kind of hope it will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, the, for those who didn't live it, you know, it's nice to be able to say, hey, this did happen. You know, we, we have won. I'm, I am part of a tradition here. Uh, you know, the, the Mets don't really hit you over the head with tradition, uh, either implicitly or explicitly. But, you know, we got this. We got the 1969 Mets. And 50 years later, you don't have to explain really, unless it's somebody who has never read about sports or, or anything, what that means. I mean, I, I specifically remember Super Bowl 15, January of 1978, the Denver Broncos were playing the Cowboys. The Broncos had never won anything. They were kind of a, a, a laughing stock in the AFL. They were unsuccessful in the AFC. They never made the playoffs even. Here they were in the Super Bowl. And I remember reading a cover story in Time Magazine, These Mets of the Mountains. And in January of 1978, they weren't talking about the 1977 Mets who were abysmal because they traded Tom Seaver et al. Uh, They were talking about the 69 Mets because this was already the gold standard, the the, the gold, orange, and blue standard, if you will, and has remained so for 50 years. Uh, Do the the players, do the contemporary players care? I have no idea. I'd like to think that they will will get a kick out of this weekend, that maybe they'll, they'll pick up, you know, a little bit of history because it's it's nice to know who you're playing for. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they have, they want to go you know four for four and they want the team to win. But I I think it's it's nice for the, for these guys to you, know, you you hear from other franchises what a what a thrill it is to put on the such and such uniform. Um, you'd like to think that on on a day on a weekend where the uh, the Mets honor a world championship that it's a thrill to put on the Mets uniform in 2019. And, of course, there are some uh, Dodgers connections with the 1969 New York Mets. Obviously, the most glaring one is manager Gil Hodges, and I love the fact that that bridges the two generations together, Gil specifically, uh, especially because he was such uh, – he, he adopted Brooklyn so close to his heart, including marrying uh, – Marrying a Brooklyn girl. Um, what are some of the other Brooklyn connections? I know it, it doesn't stop at Gill. Well, you know, his half of his coaching staff, which was four people, by the way. Today, Mickey Cowley has, I think, 10 or 11 coaches, literally. And and somehow they, they, they still can make a double switch. Uh, you and, know, Rube Walker. Yeah, and a strategist. And a strategist. Yes, a strategist <laughs> and uh, quality control which uh, gives you the idea that the Mets did not have, had neither strategy nor quality nor control uh, before these <laughs> hires were made. But uh, R- Rube Walker was, uh, you know, the backup catcher to Roy Campanella on the, you know, the, in the early 50s. Uh, Joe Pignatano played for the Dodgers in both Brooklyn and L.A., won, won a ring with the uh, 59 L.A. Dodgers. 
So, you know, that, that uh, I think the, the, those are the most obvious connections. Uh, you know, certainly plenty of fandom, plenty of the people at Shea Stadium in the seats remembered 1955 as well as the, the next year's and the wait till next year's. Uh, just like, uh, you know, there, there, there's a great passage, great, great book called The Year the Mets Lost Last Place, uh, written about like a 10-day period in July of 69. Uh, about, I don't know, a dozen or so different writers, contemporary writers, just covering, covering the, the, Met, the Mets happening from all angles. It was out before the Mets won the World Series. It was enough that the Mets were losing last place. And one of the storylines follows a a Giants fan who was heartbroken from uh, you know from the Giants leaving, who became a Mets fan. He takes you know a series of buses and subways to get to Shea Stadium for the first game of of this bunch of games that are covered. The game that the Mets won on July eighth against the Cubs with three runs in the ninth inning, which sort of signaled that okay, the old days are over, the new era has begun. And I, I'll never forget the phrase in the book that said, for the first time in his adult life, I forget the guy's name, but, you know, so-and-so isn't so sad that Willie Mays is no longer, he doesn't miss Willie Mays so much. That doesn't miss Willie Mays quite so much. That was the phrase. It took me three times to get it. Uh, so, you know, you know we, we, we talk often about, you know, the, the 62 Mets being the product of the disappearance, the the, the abandonment by the uh, the Dodgers in 57 and the Giants in 57. But, you know, that still, that still lingers, uh, you know. And, and the, 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 the not, not maybe not the abandonment issues, but, again, the only – there are enough people who are old enough. If, if you're a Mets fan in 1969 and you're really, man, what, 17, 18 or older, again, you know, maybe kids don't remember them at that point. Somebody like Howie Rose has said, like, he has no memory of them. He was born in 1954. But, you know, if you're born in the early 50s, you at least remember that those teams existed. If you're born in the late 40s, by which point, you know, you're just getting out of college or you're in the Army or, or whatever, you know, you remember those teams. And if you're even a little little older than that, you're under 30 and remember what, what, what they used to say. Never trust anybody over 30, you know, unless it was Don Cardwell or Don Clendenin <laughs> or Ed Charles, obviously, or Gil Hodges, of course, but um, – or no, a few others. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, part of, it's part of your fan experience. Experience the same way that you know for me the myths of uh, from 1969 forward everything is for somebody like you you know everything from 2004 and whatever you remember before you you signed on with the Mets is so it's in your it's not only in your DNA it's in your consciousness so the the fact that you know for for, for some of us it was all new I was six years old I was born a, after uh, after the Dodgers and Giants left town but for anybody who was of a certain age you know did this if they were a Dodger fan or a Giant fan, I doubt there was anybody who was both. Um, you know, it fits into the, the great moments of your life as a fan. So, uh, you know, beyond Gil and Rube and, and Piggy, and I, I may be missing I – I don't think there were – at that point there were any players left. There would be you know, Bob Aspermonte, who played a little bit for the Dodgers before they left Brooklyn and who played for the Astros and the, and the Braves and some other teams would become a Met in 1971 and become the last Brooklyn Dodger to, to play in the major leagues, but he wasn't part of the 69 team. So, uh, you know, there was still some, you know, Don Drysdale retired that year, but he was never a Met. Um, Johnny Padres was still around, 
Uh, he would play, I, I'm not sure if he was still around 70, but I know he pitched in 69. So, you know, there were still a handful of those guys. Of course, Willie Mays was still on the scene and would be through 1973. So, you know, there were, there were but, you know, it, as with everything, you know, t- time takes care of those things. So, you know, the, there were a lot, a lot of old Dodger fans at Chase Stadium, a lot of old Giant fans, and 55,000 Mets fans. And there's just not that same type of connection for any other team in, in sports, let alone baseball. Uh, uh, being so, you know, having two teams out there that as much as fans like to, you know, probably had uh, this issue with the fact that they, they felt that he felt was uh, very much a shrine to Dodgers history more than it was to Mets history. Um, the Mets are a very unique case of, being born, and just as I said that, somebody went by uh, with a Mets hat on a scooter in Hoboken, by the way. Um, Excellent. Just, you know, they're the only team that was born out of two teams leaving a place, uh, abandoning uh, a place. And it, it is remarkable, uh, you know, it, it, and it just it just shows you that, that as frustrated, the reason why we get so frustrated over the Wilpons and Dodger fans got frustrated over Walter O'Malley, and Giants fans got frustrated over Horace Stoneham. It's because we care so deeply about these teams. And, uh, you know, we're, we're coming uh, to about 30 seconds left of the live show, uh, but I just wanted to hammer that point home about how unique the Mets are in sports culture, that, that there, there's no other team like them. Two, two went into one, that's for sure. Uh, but if you can hold on for a second, I, I just wanted to have a little few afterthoughts, uh, be, you know, for the archive listeners. So uh, we appreciate everybody listening live. Thank you so much. And uh, please continue the uh, listening experience on the archive. So, Greg, I, I wanted to mention that, you, you know, you were talking about since 2004 for me. I think prior to that, the, the Mets memories that I have that, that are so vivid, uh, it, it, like the, the first two that pop up are the 15-inning Robin Ventura Grand Slam single. That was such an unbelievable Mets experience for me, even though I wasn't completely converted yet, watching that game on the television. And then the other one, for, this is a very specific moment that I bet you can somehow run with, which is Mike Hampton in extra innings while I, with me in Shea Stadium almost hitting a walk-off home run, but the ball going foul in 2000. And I don't believe the Mets ended up winning the game, but I'm, I was, I was wondering whether you have any recollection of that. I, I was at that game on a Saturday afternoon. I think it was in May. I want to say it was against the Marlins. Um, oh, yeah. The Marlins or Diamondbacks? I think it was the Marlins. And, uh, yeah, we, we had been, you know, again, I, I think – I don't know, again, if, if this is a, uh, a National League-wide thing, but it's definitely a Mets fan thing uh, to be, uh, you know. Well, but there's a phrase I, li- I like to use called baseball porn. <laughs> baseball porn being one of those little <laughs> out-of-the-ordinary events uh, that get, like, the hardcore fan overly excited. Things like, you know, bunting against the shift, hitting the other way, bringing – bringing your closer in in the eighth inning, replacing your closer when he doesn't have it, 
going against orthodoxy and, and, and having it work out. I, I think the, the most hardcore baseball porn is pitchers hitting successfully. And obviously, you know, the, the Mets have had a lot of success in that area in the last few years with pitchers hitting home runs, which it, which is its own, you know, tri- triple X event, shall we say. But uh, so, so we were excited <laughs> as Mets fans, I, I think as I, I think I think I can speak for the group here. We were excited as Mets fans when we got Mike Hampton, not just because he was coming off a 22 win season for Houston. And we, we looked at him as the next step toward making the World Series in 2000. But that he was an excellent hitting pitcher, one of those rare pitchers who wasn't just good for a pitcher hitting. He was a good hitter. And, you know, you, you can't wait to see that in action. If you watch enough games, you, as much as you appreciate the, you know, the moment-by-moment moment same things, the routine of it, to get something out of the ordinary, that, that gets your blood going. So I, I should point out that the couple, two years before we got Mike Hampton, he was still there when Hampton showed up, Dennis Cook became a Mets reliever from the, uh, the 97 world champion Marlins and many other stops. And he had been a really good hitter. And Jim Leland had used him as a pinch hitter. And for two years, Bobby Valentine, for whatever reason, and we know Bobby Valentine likes to do unusual things, never used Dennis Cook to pinch hit. So it's like, well, wait, this is never going to happen. What about Mike Hampton? Here we were. The bench must have been low at that point in extra innings, like you said. And here's Mike Hampton. And it was just like a surge of excitement through Shea Stadium. And, yes, I do remember the foul ball to hit it to left, I think. I have to admit, I don't remember whether Hampton hit from the right side or the left side. So probably from the right side, as most pitchers seem to hit from the opposite side and are allowed to these days. And, uh, yeah, might have won it. I don't remember if there was somebody on base, but it would have been an extra base hit at the very least, and uh, it didn't happen. Um, but I, I could see where you would remember that. I mean, I, I think all it takes when, when you're a certain age, uh, especially when, when, you're, when you're impressionable, uh, and, you know, again, you can be impressionable at any age, I suppose, is, is for one thing to happen and to just stick with you and then define your expectations. And, you know, I'll, I'll just throw, throw this in, in here, hopefully not, not as a non sequitur. Um, for some reason, I have a vivid memory of there was a catcher named Joe Nolan on the 72 Mets, went on to a uh, pretty long career as I think mostly a backup with the Braves and the Orioles. And I remember like the, the September – Early October, the season, you know, extended to early October. 1972, Joe Nolan was constantly catching. He must have been catching when Roberto Clemente had his 3,000th hit. Just every day, Joe Nolan, because Jerry Grody was injured, they weren't using Duffy Dyer, I guess. I looked it up a couple of years ago. Joe Nolan played in exactly four games as a Met. <laughs> I was sure. In, in my mind, from the, that was the season I was nine. That, oh, God, Joe Nolan, every day with Joe. I mean, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with every day if it had been Joe Nolan, but it was just one of those things that I must have just really focused on one of those four games that day and just burned into my memory. Joe Nolan, 1972 Mets catcher. And I think when my, my blog partner, Jason Fry, found some reason to write about Joe Nolan 
a few years ago. That's, I guess that's what caused me to write about it. I wanted to, I, I think he sort of dismissed him lightly, his, his contribution to Mets history, and I was all prepared to say, no, you don't remember that Joe Nolan was this in the 1972 season. I looked it up. No, it was in four games. Never mind. <laughs> so, so sometimes, you know, you, you just gain an, gain an impression. You, you decide that a player is really good even though he wasn't or wasn't very good even though he was because you happened to be there that one day where, you know, he hit the home run or he struck out with the bases loaded. And, uh, you know, that's what we have retro sheet and baseball reference for to uh, kind of square that if, if we want to. Or, But you know what? Ultimately, we'll just walk around uh, thinking what we want to think, I guess. And uh, Mike Hampton, boy, I, I wish that had happened. But uh, there's only been a handful of pinch yeah. hits by pitchers in Mets history, and uh, unfortunately, I don't think any of them have been home runs. Dwight Gooden once tripled as a pinch hitter, as did John Neese. But uh, sadly, uh, Mike Hampton did not. You know, I don't remember much about my first Shea Stadium game ever, uh, but I I believe it was 1996. I don't remember who they were facing. I'm pretty sure I remember that they won. But my dad and I went there. might have even been 95, come to think of it, uh, but probably more likely 96. And if somehow some way if i can figure out how to like do some investigation maybe 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 that's my next documentary is is finding that met game <laughs> i don't know i don't know where i could begin unfortunately my dad didn't even have any memory of it when when i discussed it with him at some point uh but i do remember you know my dad who ended up bringing me up as a yankee fan was cheering rather hardly for the mets and we were in field box seating uh, and that was my first ever New York National League baseball game. It was, it was yeah. sometime, it, it, it probably was like April or May, because my next memory of baseball was that October, and my my elementary school teacher going gaga over her Bronx-born New York Yankees. Well, I, I'm going to assume it was a day game? Yes. Yes, it was a day game. Okay. So, big in weekend, probably? Probably, yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay, well, so well I'm, I'm, I'll that have gives to, us a little, a, little, a little something to start with, and uh, we'll, we'll work on this. We'll, 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 we'll look into we'll work, uh, yeah, some, we'll some repressed memories and get them out of you. Exactly. And uh, I, I'll finish with this, since we were talking about Robinson Cano. Um, you know, Mike Hampton was one of those trades where he had success with another team, and unfortunately he did not sign back on with the New York Mets uh, going forward. Uh, But the Mets have such a knack for players not performing up to their standards uh, coming into there. Obviously, Johan Santana, as as injured as he may have ended up being, I think that he is certainly the exception to the rule, considering not only did he have great numbers whenever he was on the field for the New York Mets, but he also gave us the first no-hitter in Mets history. Uh, but Mike Hampton's one of those exceptions as well. And, and, and Mets fans, even though they, you know, he burned them for the education system of Denver, which considering I know something about Denver is rather sound, but still, um, you know, Mike Hampton's the exception to the rule and, and Mets fans always think about him fondly. Yeah, well, the, the one thing I think that we, we tend to overlook when we say, God, we get this guy and he was so good there and he's not good here, is that 
there is unfortunately a shelf life for athletes. And if the athlete in question has been producing at a high level for enough years that he is attractive to you as a team, chances are he has already peaked on some level or, you know, is close to peaking. And, you know, Mike Hampton, I think, Mike, Mike Hampton actually probably deserves a, you know, a special slot in Met history as I believe, again, I, I, don't, I don't think this has been, uh, I don't think he's been top since I last, like, did a lot of thinking about it. You know, the best one-year player the Mets have ever had. You know, he was only on the Mets in 2000. He, he, had, he had some, some rough going early, but he came around, had a great second half pitched them, you know, literally pitched them to the pennant against St. Louis, did not have a great World Series, or for that matter, a great NLDS, but, you know, he did what you asked him to do, but he wasn't quite the Mike Hansen of Houston, and unfortunately, the bit about uh, the schools in Denver, that, that will come out of everybody's mouth at the same time as the name Mike Hansen comes up, because that's, you know, he said it, and he, he it stays with him, and it was kind of a strange comment. Um you know, Johan Santana, who I loved and who I, w- I, would, I would trade uh, Carlos Gomez and the other three players for him in a second again, um, wasn't Minnesota Twins' version of Johan Santana because he had that mileage on him. He gave it all he had. He had, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, you mentioned the no-hitter. We'll never forget Game 161 of 2008, keeping literally keeping a season on his shoulders with a, you know, complete game, three hits, shut out on a bad knee on short rest. I mean, every every caveat you put in there makes it more impressive with a horrible bullpen because the Mets have never had one of those before or after. So um, I, I get a, there are examples of, of great players coming here and maintaining their greatness and situationally fitting it into a, a larger story, into the next years. I mean, Gary Carter had his greatest years in Montreal. He deserves to be in, my, in the Hall of Fame with that exposed cap on this plaque as much as it pains me to admit that. But he gave you two fantastic transcendent years. One of them brought you a world championship, so you can't complain about that there was a downhill decline after that. Keith Hernandez, same essential story, had a little more left when he came to the Mets also had a decline, but, you know, he gave you what you needed. Um, so, you know, it, we, we do occasionally, you know, benefit. You know, the, the real trick is can you trade for somebody who is a no-name, who is not a prospect, who you didn't have to give up anything for, you know, uh, and he becomes a superstar for you. You've, you've fleeced somebody else. Here, I'll, I'll throw one name into the discussion the Mets traded a pitcher who went, I believe, one in ten for them, uh, named Tom Parsons from the 1965 Mets for a catcher with the Houston Astros who, who grew up to be Jerry Grody, who became a two-time All-Star, who became the, the quarterback of those great Mets teams of 69 and 73, who was acknowledged as one of the great defensive catchers of his time, who would have many gold gloves if not for the existence of Johnny Bench, who, you know, Tom Seaver, you know, name-checked at his Hall of Fame ceremony alongside Bench and Carlton Fisk. So, you know, you get one of those. Uh, 
you know, Jerry Grody was like, I think a 195 hitter, either coming out of Houston or his first year as a Met. But he was young and he had the tools, may have been a hothead, but uh, he he became like a cornerstone of the franchise. So, you know, nobody ever wants to really talk about that because then then, then we're not making ourselves miserable. <laughs> we're not dwelling on uh, and making you know to 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 to, to be I'll say this, to be a passionate fan is to court misery, it's to court unhappiness. Because at the at the end of not the end of the day, but at the end of the year, only one team can be only one team's fans can be incredibly happy. And you know everybody else has to sort of like you know rationalize and calibrate how happy they are, and even the fan of the team that just won a championship, saying, "All right, like, are we going to be able to repeat? Are we going to be able to keep this team together? Who are they going to sign?" So you know you're you're just asking for it. So I'm not I'm not surprised that we tend to process things that way. Yeah, the Mets do do bring in superstars who are decide to stop being superstars or so it seems. But you know, occasionally you get lucky. Occasionally things work out. I won't say it all comes out in the wash because it does seem in the in the era that we are in, it does seem to lean on the other side, sadly, that we give away Justin Turner and we uh trade a lot and pay a lot for Robbie Cano. But uh, you know, we will we, we keep watching anyway. Well, Greg, I think we're about to get cut off. Uh, as always, I appreciate you joining us, and it's always a fun discussion. We'll see you at the end of the year. Very much a pleasure, Sam. Thank you. Thank you, guys, and thank you all for listening. Take care.